1: Hi, welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm your host, Christina Fryer. Today we're talking with Yari Marbonia, author of the new book, Non-Sovereign Futures, French Caribbean Politics in the Wake of Disenchantment, published this year by the University of Chicago Press. The book is an ethnography of labor activists in Guadeloupe, which is one of... (music) Hi, welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm your host, Christina Fryer. Today, we're talking with Yarimar Bonilla, author of the new book, Non-Sovereign Futures, French-Caribbean Politics in the Wake of Disenchantment, published this year by the University of Chicago Press. The book is an ethnography of labor activists in Guadeloupe, which is one of France's overseas departments. And these labor activists are creating alternative forms of politics that are not bound by the question of sovereignty. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi, and welcome back to New Books in Caribbean Studies. Today, I'm here with uh, Yarema Bonilla who is the author of the very new book, uh, new, uh, Non-Sovereign Futures, French-Caribbean Politics in the Wake of Disenchantment. Yarmar, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> well,
1: we're excited to have you. Um, so, just going to start with some introductory questions. These are uh, the typical questions that we start with here uh, at New Books. Um, so what led you to become an anthropologist, and then uh, tell us how you came to this specific project uh, of uh, on focusing on Guadalupe um, and labor activists there?
0: Okay, great. Well, that's a tough question. I feel like I've been an anthropologist for so long, I don't remember making the choice. But um, I guess when I was in graduate school, I was doing my master's in Latin American studies. and. I initially, I thought my concentrations would be political science and history, but I I didn't really like my poli sci classes. <laughs> they were mostly um, very oriented towards predictive modeling and uh, you know statistic regressions and all these kind of algebraic equations um, to to kind of predict human behavior. And I didn't find that very gratifying. And I just started taking um, elective courses in anthropology. And I really liked the kind of flexibility of the discipline its interdisciplinary nature and and what it allows so I became I became interested in that and then um, I found out about my mentors work um, Michelle roth Trio and wanted to work with him and I think there was also a little bit of well if he's an anthropologist that's what I want to be and so I, that's when I went to the University of Chicago um, to work with him um, but uh, and and at that time, I still didn't know that I would write about Guadalupe. I thought my work would be about Puerto Rico, but um, he kind of convinced me of of the value of uh, stepping outside of your own society, which is kind of a classic anthropological move also. And so I began exploring different parts of the Caribbean, just reading more broadly. And I became really interested in the French Caribbean not because of its stark difference but actually because of its similarity to Puerto Rico and I decided I wanted to think about questions of colonialism and empire in in a context that was different from the United States so to kind of break out of the US centered com- context that for as a Puerto Rican as a person of Puerto Rican background that was a given for me, so to kind of think about these questions in a different frame. And so that's how I became interested in Francophone studies and in Guadeloupe in particular.
1: So then tell us a little bit uh, about uh, about Guadeloupe. It's an overseas department of France. Um, and for listeners who might not be familiar with that term, can you tell us what that means? So it has,
0: I, I say that it has a relationship comparable to that of Hawaii to the United States. So unlike Puerto Rico, which has an ambiguous status, it's a commonwealth, it's not fully incorporated into the U.S., uh, Guadeloupe is is fully incorporated as a department, which is the system in France that is similar to states in the United States. So they have French citizenship, they have representation in parliament, um, and they have, in theory at least, all the rights and, and duties of French citizens.
1: So would it be... Inaccurate then to say that Guadeloupe is still in some sort of colonial relationship, or is that, or is that terminology not useful in this situation?
0: Well, that's that's a question that's debated in Guadeloupe and beyond. So some people think that a lot of the economic, social, and racial um, foundations of colonialism remain in place, and that incorporation into France didn't eliminate those disparities. And uh, other folks argue that. That departmentalization was a form of decolonization, and that Guadeloupe is no longer a colony since it is a full part of France. So that that is an active and ongoing debate.
1: Oh, interesting. So, but the 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 way that you phrase it in the book is that uh, Guadeloupe is a non sovereign uh, state, um, and you note that Guadeloupe. Um, and Martinique, of course, are presented as sort of anomalies within the Caribbean, but actually you say, um, that the majority of the Caribbean, uh, islands are in fact non-sovereign. Um, and even those, and, and I think you're making this argument implicitly, that even those states that are technically independent, um, also themselves have, uh, fairly little sovereignty. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
0: Yes, no, that, that is exactly what I argue. So rather than getting into a debate about Guadeloupe's Colonial or non-colonial status. I'm, I'm more interested in thinking about how its status is similar to that of independent states. So how I, I think about non-sovereignty in multiple ways. So first of all, I do try to try to bring to the you know foreground. Um, these societies that have been thought of as anomalies and exceptions and unique and, and, and singular, and to think about how there's a large number of societies in the Caribbean that don't fit the model of the nation-state. Um, so, Guadalupe, Puerto Rico, uh, Curaçao, um, there, there's a large number of them, and I argue that, in fact, the majority of Caribbean societies are not independent nation-states. But beyond that, I'm also trying to think about what sovereignty has meant in the Caribbean more broadly um, across time and across different you know linguistic regions of the Caribbean and I argue that the promise of, of sovereignty of post-colonial sovereignty in particular has never really been achieved in the Caribbean and so even nominally sovereign states still struggle with the legacies of colonialism, still struggle with the imposition of foreign economic markets, economic imperatives. And so I'm trying to, to think about the Caribbean as a whole, as a kind of non-sovereign archipelago. Borrowing from um, Antonio Benitez Rojo, I argue that there's a kind of non-sovereign island that repeats itself with certain particularities in each place. So I try to not collapse the differences uh, across the Caribbean, but to think about how we can develop a theory of sovereignty that, that can um, encompass the Caribbean as a whole and help us think about the challenges of sovereignty throughout the Caribbean region rather than, than thinking about exceptions and, and then, you know, in a way that reinforces a norm that has never existed. So I argue that this kind of sovereign, you know, homogenous, politically stable uh, society has always been a myth, not just in the Caribbean but beyond.
1: Right. And I think this is a this is quite an interesting argument and certainly one that um, I think is going to uh, reshape how I approach my modern Caribbean survey. Um, So you say that this promise of sovereignty has never really been reached. Is this the disenchantment that you're referring to in the in the title?
0: Yes. So, well, I talk about disenchantment. Yes. And. and in several ways, but I I suggest that there's also a widespread disenchantment that isn't just in the in in the non-independent Caribbean. So I so said that throughout the Caribbean there is disenchantment with the sovereignty project. So in places like Guadalupe and Puerto Rico, um, that looks like a rejection of independence um, because that that. That project has become a kind of future past, and in, in, as David Scott would suggest. Um, but even in the independent Caribbean, I argue there's also a significant disenchantment with the promises of sovereignty as you know as they were packaged in the post-war era, and. I argue that throughout the Caribbean populations are searching for alternative political forms and um, alternative forms of politics. This is what I describe as non-sovereign politics, which are um, social movements that are not um, focused around state formation and are not focused around the attainment or the consolidation of state power, but that do still search to create new alternatives, new forms of community, and new um, relationships to uh, power, both locally and globally. And that I see, you know, I I don't do this work in the book, but I do see connections between what is happening in Guadalupe and the kind of social movements that are sprouting up in other parts throughout the Caribbean region, but also in other parts of the world today.
1: So the non-sovereign uh, politics that you're describing your your sort of site of study in the book um are this or is this long history of labor activism in in Guadalupe um and, and i think this moves us into into chapter 1 um so how did nationalist struggle and then i guess post-nationalist struggle become so, tied so closely to labor activism in Guadalupe
0: So yes i i in the book and uh, precisely in chapter 1 i examine the kind of rise of this new form of labor activism. Now, this is something that is particular to the Francophone context, given um, the you know the importance of labor in France more broadly and the, the legal possibilities for collective bargaining in the French Caribbean. So there's a reason why labor is, becomes a fertile site in this place and not in other parts of the Caribbean where labor unions have been stamped out, you know. So um in the I I, I examined how in the early parts of the of the nineteen hundreds, most uh French Caribbean populations they supported integration with France. But so after the the moment of departmentalization in forty five, almost immediately there was significant disappointment with that project. And as Antillean migrants moved to mainland France to work and help rebuild after the war, they experienced all sorts of discriminations as documented in famous texts like France Fanon's white skin, uh, black mask, uh, sorry, black skin, white mask. And then at the same time you have in the French Antilles, the arrival of all these um, metropolitan um, emigres from France through what Césaire described as genocide by substitution. So it's in that period where the promises of integration quickly lose their purchase, that um, Antillian populations became more radicalized. And this is also the period where you have um, independence struggles throughout um, the Caribbean and throughout most of um, uh, the former colonies. So in that moment, there's a rise of nationalist um, activism. And that that is seeking independence, and they were engaged in armed struggle. They had strong connections to Cuban insurgents and and Nicaragua movements and and different kinds of um, movements, Algeria and beyond. But around very quickly by the 1960s, there was significant repression of those movements on the part of the French state, and they became very fractured and went underground, and a splinter group from those movements began organizing sugar workers in, in both Guadeloupe and, and Martinique focus more specifically on Guadeloupe, And through that work with the sugar workers, they, they kind of turned into a labor movement. So it's not that they really set out to become a labor union. It's that again, this, the, there were certain, um, political possibilities available through syndicalism that were not available through other forms of struggle. And so in the 1970s, you have the rise of this new form of labor activism that is engaged in, in labor struggles, but is fusing that together with the politics of memory, the politics of language, You know, uh, revitalizing the Creole language, revitalizing um, local music, and it became a kind of cultural nationalist movement. Similar to the kind of cultural nationalism that was taking place in other parts of the Caribbean, um, where you had kind of folk Caribbean practices becoming consolidated as national, as a kind of nationalist culture, a national culture, right. you have a similar process going on in Guadeloupe through the work of these um, labor activists and cultural activists. So that's that's around the period of the 1970s where they became very strong, and so they have continued to to grow in strength and support. And in the book, I trace their development all the way up to um, a major general strike that they launched in 2009.
1: Right. And we'll, we'll certainly get there. Um, That is the uh, last chapter of the book. Um, How did, because it seems by the time you're doing field work in, in Guadalupe in uh, the early two thousands, I believe, is that correct? Your first? Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. Um, it seems that by that point there the, the labor activism has been somewhat decoupled uh, from nationalist politics, and you you write that sovereignty uh, basically or the idea of sovereignty as a political as something to take political action towards uh, becomes taboo. How does that happen
0: well I, I think increasingly um, independence uh, becomes uh, a, a kind of foreclosed option, so even though there's still a strong Number of people who um, talk about independence and and support it at times, what they mean is is something broader than just political independence. So they, you know, I talk in the book how about how sovereignty is a kind of native category in the Caribbean for thinking about cultural sovereignty, food sovereignty, sovereignty of the imagination, and so there's still a very strong support for for those that kind of sovereignty, but not as much for political independence. And um, in part because it's imagined as untenable, in part because it's imagined as undesirable. Um, and also given the the fact that such a large number of Antillians live in France, um, some people estimate about 45% of the Antillian population lives in France. Uh, a break with France is not imagined to be possible. but um, And so this is uh, part of my interest in the book for thinking not just about Guadalupe, or more broadly in the Caribbean, about the lack of language for other political projects. Right. And so that's why I use the term non-sovereign, not just because it's a rejection of sovereignty, but because it's the search for something other than the kind of post colonial sovereignty project. And so that, that's the kind of politics that I saw on the ground. And so even if some folks, many folks, um, they would say that they want sovereignty for Guadeloupe, but they would say that they would want it even if it's under the French flag. So what they mean is not necessarily a rupture with France, but a search for other kinds of sovereignty. And so I also examine in the book how. In, in, in that move, um, the figure of the maroon becomes very important and how there's, um, a turn to this kind of alternative model of sovereignty that is in, still in entanglement with the colonial society. So right. it's not a complete kind of rupture, but that it, it kind of, it offers a model for thinking about how you could have a certain kind of sovereignty within the context of entanglement.
1: Yeah. And let's actually move into this is in in chapter two. And um, I'll note that as a historian, I was particularly taken with the ways that um, that labor activists uh, engaged with and manipulated history um, to their own purposes and in really fascinating ways. Um, And you open chapter two with this interview with somebody uh, by the name of Lucas. Is that correct? Yeah. Who basically describes labor activists as maroons. But he has a very specific definition of what marinage is. Could you tell us a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah. So for Lucas, um, marinage is not just the formation of of a separate community, but it's a form of coming and going, and so it's it's about an epistemic rupture with the logics of the system. And and in that was it was through that interview that I became more interested in the history of marinage. This was not something that I had set out to study. And what I eventually what I wanted to portray or convey in the book is how the meaning of marronage shifts over time. Right. So so part of what I want to show is how marronage is an important political category for Caribbean populations. But the content of that category is not stable. And so in diff- for different political generations in different problem spaces, the meaning ascribed to though the, the way it's imagined and the, the, the work it's made to do changes. And so I look at how before, um, in the early 1900s, maroons were imagined as boogeymen. They were not um, romanticized, they were not heroes. They were imagined as escaped convicts and dangerous um, characters. And it is with the rise of the nationalist movement that then the maroon figure becomes revalued and imagined. As a hero, as a nationalist hero, but in a way that aligns with the project of postcolonial sovereignty, maroons were imagined as building separate nation states, almost separate communities that were uh, independent and 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 in, you know not in relationship with the colonial system. But I, I examined how more recently and, and at present in Guadeloupe, the figure of the maroon is, is is has been reimagined once again, and so at times compared to kind of the urban trickster um who is navigating the informal economy and also uh, the maroons are now imagined as being in in a different kind of relationship to plantation society not just breaking ties but questioning the the logics of plantation society and also drawing from its resources when necessary and so each each of those interpretations of maroonage they are substantiated by the historical record um but but they they pull on a different thread, in, in, in a way, and, and and create a different narrative about marionage that responds to the political needs of different moments.
1: Yeah, and it's really fascinating uh, how, just how um, these the The way that Lucas is framing Marinage actually seems to correspond in a certain way with uh, some of the historiography on Marinage. Um, there's a very sophisticated understanding of, uh, of what Marinage is that certainly, you know, even 50 years ago in the scholarship, uh, we wouldn't have found. Um, and it strikes me that this is actually a good moment to... Uh, move us back quickly to something that you mentioned in the preface, I believe, um, which is how, which is your methodology and how you are, um, trying to use the, the, the interviews that you did, uh, the field work that you did, um, use these voices as analysis, uh, rather than anecdote. Um, can you say a little bit more about how that might differ from standard approaches in anthropology and why you chose to do it this way?
0: Sure. Well, first, let me say one more thing about um, my approach to these historical narratives. So Absolutely. So they tie they tie to the historical record as as you suggest, but I try very carefully to not do what some have described as a kind of verificationist anthropology, where I would then you know connect what my informant said to material in the archives as a kind of validation. For their theories so i I tried to shy away from that even while at the same time I did try to point to the resonances mm-hmm. with the historical uh, record and so it, precisely the way i'm i my approach is is guided by what I explained in the preface of this this way of approaching my informants as theorists so I tried to put this as a challenge to myself so when I cite them, when I draw from them, I treat them the way I would treat other other scholars, in a in a similar way as as authorities. At times, sometimes I question what they say, and then there are moments in the book where I have disagreements with my informants, and I push back on their reading of Guadalupian society. But I, I argue that this is. This is how we should approach not just informants, but how we should approach theorists, all our interlocutors. Um, so that we there, there should be moments of depar- convergence and departure. And so in in with uh, Lucas's vision of Marinage and that of the other folks that I cite in the book, I try to put them in relationship to how historians have debated about Marinage and how other um, theorists have have and thinkers have thought about the historical record. And I try to do that throughout the book. And, and I do think it is a bit of a departure from the way, um, eth- you know, voices are used within ethnography, which is, it, it's it's as it's been untheorized to a certain extent what the role of um, Native voices are in the text that Trio, um, I cite Trio who asks a provocative question, are they there, you know, just to add flavor, character, what is their value? Right. And so... I tried to, to think carefully about what they were contributing and to to make room for them not just as evidence of my argument, but as folks who have arguments of their own. And so I wanted the reader to feel like they were in conversation with the folks in Guadalupe, as also with Trio, with Benitez Rojo, with myself, you know, in in, in thinking about the Caribbean region and that it could be a kind of dialogue with these multiple voices that are each well poised from their own position to tell the reader about this place,
1: and I think that that really that really comes across uh, quite well uh, throughout, um, especially in 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 chapter three, which is the first of you talk about two sets of strikes in in the book, or you focus on two sets of strikes in the book, um, and the first is uh, this sugar strike. Um, chapter three is called Life on the Piquet. Um, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes, you are. Um, and uh, this is earlier in the 2000s, uh, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly. Yes. Um, and can you talk about uh, what what this strike was about, how long it went on, um, and the outcomes of it?
0: So yeah, the 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 Sucre strike that I cover in chapter three, it lasted an entire calendar year. Wow. And yeah, so it was it was not not entirely rare there are many <laughs> strikes yeah but but during during the time i was there it was definitely a, a, an opportunity um and there was something about these um workers i just i think just the time that i met them um that they were just so uh, insightful about their experience and so they they had uh and, and about his visions of the strike and he, he becomes the theorist for this strike, and he wasn't even necessarily talking about them um, when he talks about the importance of, and, and the, the kind of mechanisms of the strike in Guadalupe. But it's just that in some ways, they became kind of their, their process was very emblematic of the way Max and others envisioned the strike. So when they went on strike, they weren't entirely sure about how long it would last. Um, they, they didn't have a good sense of what they were getting themselves into, and it's, it was only through that process um, that they realized what it meant to be on strike and how it really changes your relationship to Guadalupean society. So they began experiencing everything differently, I mean... Uh, uh, the. The first thing is that they don't have a salary, so they didn't have a salary for over a year. And a lot of people in Guadalupe assume that the union pays off workers so that they can sustain these long strikes. They, they were not paid off. There were certainly acts of solidarity, and they would sell food sometimes um, on the pique or do these kind of lunches, and people would come and contribute, and they would you know raise funds at times. But for the most part, they were learning what it was like to live it, 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 with a different relationship to this Society that is very much driven by consumption. And so to be kind of taken out of that consumption economy, that was already a big deal. And then they were also in this, I talk about this kind of liminal space that they inhabit between work and leisure where they go to their job every day, but they're not engaged in their usual production of of labor. They are sitting around in these quiet spaces talking about what they were going through, talking about their employer. And they were also... um, in a different kind of community because there were no longer the kind of divisions between the people who deliver the goods and the people who produce them, the different shifts. They were all kind of together and um, in, in forming this kind of new community on the picket line. So it was a very, I, I, I try to not romanticize the process because Some people lost their jobs. Some people lost their spouses. They went through a lot of difficulty during this time. Um, But somehow, and, and I try to give a sense of all that in the book, but yet when I talk to them, they would still have a lot of nostalgia about that time. On the picket line, and one woman who I interview, she describes it like a love affair. Like even even if it ends badly, you still kind of remember the the good parts of it and those moments of community and bonding that they had. So I try to convey um, a sense of that, and this is part of what makes anthropology different from. Other disciplines that have tended to study social movements and particularly labor studies, they tend to be very dry and very focused around outcomes. So, what did what did they gain in terms of wage increases or reduced, you know, work periods, etc.? But my focus is more on how were they transformed as individuals during this process, and so I try to get at those um, subjective transformations um, in my in my description of the strike
1: so if we revert quickly to the the drier forms of of uh, labor uh, of labor studies uh what were the outcomes of 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 the strike in terms of uh in terms of uh, wages in terms of the 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 issues that they were uh, striking over at the beginning
0: well they had a they had a restructuring of their um work condition of of the kind of forms of payment so the i it's not fresh in my mind it's in the book but like the 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 drivers, for example, they became paid under a new system that was not uh, based on the time that they worked, but on other things. And then um, there were also salary increases for some of the people in other parts of the industry. But what I found was that so even though they had certain gains, um, the, uh, the the company also did a kind of de facto downsizing, and right. so certain positions were eliminated, and so. Even though they had, they, they, they had supposed improved work conditions, some of them were working longer hours at, at the end of the day under the new formulations. And then other things that they gained in um, writing were not actually applied.
1: Of course. And
0: so the, at the, I, I haven't followed up recently, but the last time I had talked to them, they were trying to figure out if they would go on strike again to, to have those things applied. Uh, how could they, you know, they realized that the, that labor movement is not a kind of moment, but it's a kind of ongoing process that is not, okay, we signed the agreements and now everything is good and we no longer have problems in our workplace, but rather that they had to sustain um, the energy of the strike and to keep meeting and to, to continue to be a, a, a kind of important presence in their workplace. and when i when i kind of concluded my research they were still figuring out how to do that
1: and it it seems as though there's a way that that the sort of disappointment with some of the outcomes actually um actually channels new forms of of politics and new forms of political strategy um and you you talk about this to some degree in chapter 4 um which is the the hunger strike of a labor activist by the now, by the name of uh Michelle uh, Matasami. am i pronouncing that correctly yeah, Michel Marasami. okay. Yeah. um and and he uh, goes on strike after uh, after being arrested. um and I'll ask you to to give us a little bit more about about his his story. Um, but it seems as though the in response to that strike, the union activists uh, were took on a, a different set of tactics that actually confused and confounded the entire island. Um, so let us uh, give us a little bit more about this pretty interesting figure, uh, Marasami. Um, and then the union response.
0: Yeah, so so in the book, uh, chapter, chapter three is the one about the Sucre workers, and I kind of leave them aside, you know, for a minute, and and kind of leave them trying to figure out what to do next. And it is um, like you say that like disappointment fuel later participation because the the Sucre workers and everyone in the book kind of comes back at the end to participate in the large. 2009 strike. So I, I kind of examined how different things that were happening in society then converge in 2009. So um, with Michelle Madasami, part of what was interesting about the Madasami strike was the moment in which it occurred was a time when the union was rethinking its relationship to the media, and so there was it was the moment when blogs were emerging and different forms of kind of um, new media were appearing on the landscape in Guadeloupe, and so um, Michel Malassamy he was captured, um, captured as <laughs> a little bit strong. He was arrested um, and placed in jail, but not sentenced um, for his participation in previous uh, labor strikes. He had um, been accused of certain charges with destruction of property, etc. And so he went on a hunger strike to protest his arrest. And it became a, a very mediatized affair, and he, it lasted over a month that he was on this hunger strike. Um, I can't remember now if he was – I think he was drinking water but not eating. Um, and so in, in the book, I examine how um, the labor activists kind of utilized this for this strike as a kind of form of destabilization, the like creating a kind of heightened crisis in Guadeloupe where people were afraid not just of what would happen to Michelle Marathamy, but also they were in a constant state of of waiting to see what the new reaction of the union would be. So I look at how this this form of protest, the hunger strike, which is in a way very passive, you're not acting upon, you're kind of ceasing activity. Um, And it it relates to to the forms of the strike that is also about a kind of cessation of activity. It created a kind of... um, so, uh, feeling of of social crisis, um, but it also it it, it uh, spanned beyond just the folks in the union. Other people became very concerned about Michelle Marasami and involved in the strike, and there were young people who um, were arrested for their participation in in protest acts. And so, it, it the Marasami moment was a kind of precursor to what would be seen later in 2009, where broad segments of society would become involved and the media would play a very definitive role.
1: Now, Michelle uh, Madasami is of uh, Indian uh, descent, um, and you talk about the way that his ethnicity also gets bound, got bound up in sort of the media spectacle. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what his being of Indian descent means in a place like Guadeloupe?
0: Yeah, so the, the Madasami moment, I, I also look at how it kind of opened up conversations for race and ethnicity and also gender that are not usually part of union events. Um, and in terms of what Marasami's Indian identity means in Guadeloupe, it was actually an open question because um, what I argue is that in the French Caribbean, the Indian identity is, is, a, is a bit vacuous and it can be kind of filled with different content. And so on the one hand, he was compared to he was described as the son of Gandhi and and imagined as this kind of symbol of peace and transcendence but then at other times he was described as a kind of you know more violent hothead because of his ties to the union and I look at how the the labor activists who were carrying out his solidarity campaign, they played on the malleability of Indian identity in Guadalupe um, to, to portray him in different ways as kind of both a hero and a martyr that people could rally around.
1: So, um, for in, 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 the interest of time, uh, I'm going to, uh, move straight to the 2009 Guadalupe strikes, but I do want to note, uh, for listeners that, uh, chapter five, uh, is, is another example of the way that labor activists are engaging with and, and manipulating history. Um, and it's a very interesting chapter about, uh, about this, uh, tactic called, uh, memory walks and, and ways that labor activists are really reconnecting, uh, with a certain version of the past. Um, but in chapter 6 you talk about the 2009 uh, uh strikes in Guadeloupe um and these were uh, on a massive scale these became international news uh certainly the French government was uh, was forced to respond um can you let us know or tell us um I should say um what these strikes were about and how they got to be uh such on such a massive scale as opposed to say uh the sugar strike uh, that you mentioned in chapter 3
0: Why it reached such a mass scale? Yes. Um, Well, part of it was that it it, it, already with Michelle with the Madasami um, affair, there was the creation of these new organizations that were outside of the union that became charged with issues of cultural memory, historical politics, and so they're the ones that are organizing for example the memory walks in chapter 5. Right. And so then in in chapter 6 I talk about how those the, those organizations the cultural arm I, I describe as the cultural arm of the union, they allied with other groups that were like consumer advocate associations um, organizations interested in uh, the rights of disabled folks in Guadeloupe and there were forty eight different organizations that partnered up to carry out this uh, labor strike which was not it was not a labor strike it was a general strike and when it originally began it was it was, there was not a clear sense of what it would be and it didn't even have a name it was the journalist described it as the coalition for guadeloupean purchasing power because most of the things that they were uh, concerned with were the high cost of living in guadeloupe the high gasoline prices this was when gasoline prices had spiked throughout the world mm-hmm. and the high cost of, of food in the supermarket of utilities of public transportation just basically high cost of living in general in Guadalupe. Um, and they, they asked for an audience with the prefect, but they were denied, and they kind of began building steam. And eventually they, they took on the name of the lianage controfitacion, um, lianage being a kind of Creole word for a kind of community and a unity. And I talk about how um, it offered a kind of new model of community that th- that is different from that of the nation-state, and all kind of unity and difference that was... Um, that came to be through this coalition. And so they, they and they came up with this category of profitacion to kind of describe all the economic, historical, political, colonial abuses of society. And, and profitacion became this very capacious term um, that people really rallied around, and it kind of uh, tapped into kind of broader social frustrations in Guadalupe. And so this was a massive movement of 45... Uh, I think it was over 45% of the population was physically in the streets marching. Wow. Um, yeah, and and, 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 and and polls suggest that 80% supported it. Um, and they brought Guadeloupe to a halt for 44 days and were able to bring the French government to the table for negotiations and uh, made, signed agreements on 120 different points of reform.
1: So, in 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 picking up on this on on the bringing the French uh bringing the French to the table um and the signing of this uh, of these tre- of this uh, agreement um in one sense in that sort of dry labor study sense this was massively successful um but on the other on the other hand there's a sense that you pick up in when you're when you're talking to. Uh, when you're talking to people in, in Guadeloupe, that there was still a, a pretty great sense of disappointment with what had happened. Um, why were they so disappointed given what seems on paper to be a pretty pretty successful general strike?
0: Yeah, so so when I interview one of the main leaders of the movement, he says, "Oh yes, we failed we failed. Anywhere else, this would have led to the creation of a new government. And so I, I became interested in that idea and in why he thought they had failed at doing something that they hadn't even set out to do. <laughs> they, they surpassed their expectations for what they set out to do, but yet somehow the, the general strike began to look like something like a national movement, a national revolution. And so it, it kind of hinted it, it, it awoke and stirred up those um, ties and those those kind of um, attachments that people had to those political models. And so even though there had been a kind of generalized um, disenchantment with national revolution in Guadeloupe, somehow when it began to look like a national revolution, people were then disappointed when it didn't turn out that way. And so I argue that, that the, the problem is that we don't have concepts with which to describe these alternative forms of politics nor do we have measures of what of their success so we have both the concepts and the measures of success and failure that are based on a previous era of political possibility and not on our current moment and so i don't i don't have a solution to yeah. that problem but other other than than to, to kind of note know, know it's it's you know it's it's uh complications and but i do suggest that the the banners in guadalupe at the end of the 2009 strike they they don't proclaim victory they just say nothing will ever be the same again and so i do i do argue that the 2009 strike the lkp movement it had a significant impact in Guadeloupe society and that nothing will be the same again that has now become a kind of new benchmark uh, against which you know, all social movements will be uh, compared, but it it still didn't displace um, previous expectations. And even though these new categories, lianage and profitation, um, entered into circulation, they still coexist with previous categories that right. at times um, dominate the political imagination to a greater extent.
1: So if we, if, you know, you, you mentioned in the, in the introduction and you've uh, spoken about it here. Um today the the way that um you believe that that Guadeloupe and these sort of non-sovereign places actually speak to the nominally independent uh to conditions in the nominally independent Caribbean um do you have any sense of what the forms of non-sovereign politics uh might look like in these nominally independent parts of the Caribbean?
0: Well I, I don't because I think that it will depend on each context. And sure. so in, in Guadalupe, labor activism was this important fertile site. And so that's why a general strike was what could become possible there. Um, and in and, and a place like Puerto Rico, for example, at times the environmental movement has been very strong. And so there was the kind of uh, the move to get the U.S. Navy out of Vieques, for example, was right. a kind of really significant uh, moment that brought – that, that in, in some ways tapped into that environmentalism to kind of clean up and and deal with the with the environmental legacies and also public health legacies of having, you know, the navy bombing site there. Um, and another, I think, uh, struggles around the cost of living in, throughout the Caribbean are becoming important. We, the model of La Vie Share had also come out in um, Haiti, for example, and I mean now. It, throughout the United States, we're seeing the rise of this Black Lives Matter movement mm-hmm. that, that that will certainly have resonances um, in the Caribbean, I'm sure. But I think in, in each place, there will be kind of different forms of contestation that find their own particular language with which to address these disappointments, disappointments with independence and, and in the U.S., disappointments with the civil rights movement, with the promises of inclusion. Um, and so I think Uh, That kind of disenchantment is being channeled into different political forms dependent on the context. But we need to kind of remain attentive to these alternative political forms that at times don't meet up our expectations. So, for example, in the U.S., also there was Occupy Wall Street, which many saw as a kind of um, unfocused uh, political movement. But I think it it was very similar to the kind of politics that I witnessed in Guadeloupe as well.
1: Yeah, that's a that's actually a really fascinating way to, to think of that think about it. And also um I, I think you are you are right to note that this is something we should be paying attention to with this new framework of new sovereign politics in mind. Um so the final question for uh this morning, and I want to thank you uh for taking the time to, to speak with us. Um what are you working on now?
0: I am working on uh, my next book is about Puerto Rico, and about the statehood movement in Puerto Rico. So I describe it as a prequel to the Guadalupe book. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in the sense that um, we kind of already know what the story of integration looks like in Guadalupe, uh, but yet I'm interested in these folks in Puerto Rico who are imagining integration into, into the United States as a form of anti-colonial politics and a form of decolonization today.
1: Well, that sounds uh, that sounds fascinating and certainly would be uh, will be an important work for people working in really on any in any aspect of uh, the Western Hemisphere. Uh, Yarmar, we want to thank you again uh, for for speaking with us. I've really enjoyed our interview and our interview. Um, and once again, I think uh, this is a, a really great book uh, for people to read. Um, I also think it's, it's a great book for students, and I certainly am planning to, uh, to start assigning it in my own classes. Um, so thank you again uh, for speaking with us. Thank you. It was great fun. Uh, and uh, we will, uh, and thank you all for listening to uh, New Books in Caribbean Studies. Bye. You've been listening to New Books in Caribbean Studies. Thanks for joining us, and see you next time.